Yeah, it's a fascinating thing. If I'm curious, I'm going to be moving forward. Oh, what's that? And it's not like stressful focus where you close your mind in around the danger, the threat. Curious attention actually has a broad, oh, that's really good. Oh, and there, and there, and that one scans because one feels safe. In this interview, I'm joined by Richard Hill. Richard is a psychotherapist, author, speaker, and the managing director of the Science of Psychotherapy magazine. He is currently completing his PhD on client responsive therapy and has spent the past few years investigating the exciting role that curiosity can play in the therapeutic process. Richard is the author of three books, including The Practitioner's Guide to the Science of Psychotherapy, The Practitioner's Guide to Mirroring Hands, and How the Real World is Driving Us Crazy. In my work, I get to meet some fascinating characters, but I have to say that Richard may be one of the most interesting, and in this interview, I think you're going to see why. We cover the psychological and biological benefits of curiosity, how Richard's experiences as an actor influence his therapeutic work, and why he recommends that all therapists take at least one year of acting lessons, why the best therapy is the one that you never repeat, the importance of learning multiple different types of therapeutic approaches, the relationship between the actuality field the probability field and the possibility field and the relevance for therapy and more. You can learn more about Richard's work by going to richardhill.com.au. Okay, Richard, welcome to the show. In another conversation, I heard you say that wonder was your favorite word can you tell me why why this is your favorite word oh well look i'll say hello first nile and uh, uh but it, it's it's uh wonderful to to see you i i i always uh, actually on uh birthday greetings and things i put wonder hyphen full may you have a wonderful day but um yeah wonder has uh, uh certainly been a part of my life and then you know when i i teamed up with Ernest Rossi um, of, uh, of, of many, many fames. Uh, he was also in right into that, that, that framework. And so it's really curiosity. And I've taken this a long way since then. And really looking at curiosity as being one of the central, um, the central most beneficial quality or state of of mind that you can be in and i've done quite a bit of looking further into um, proposing a whole neuroscience of it and getting a bit deeper than just sort of what i what felt good but it certainly feels good and because uh, i came uh, initially into the into the world of psychotherapy through the through the world of acting i was a, an actor for 25 years and if you're not curious in acting and if you're not responsive and engaged and have great rapport and uh, look for what the other person is giving you in acting, then, well, you're, you're, you're a terrible soap opera actor. But, uh, yeah, so wonder is the, is the key, the, 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 how it affects the nature of the way, the orientation of our mind, uh, brain and body is, uh, is absolutely fantastic. Okay, so you said there the curiosity is that maybe the optimal state of being. What can you tell us a little bit about the biology of curiosity and what's actually happening in the brain and body when we're when we're being curious? 
Yeah, it's a fascinating thing to, because it's so obvious. Uh, and we just, I'll, I'll do it simple. I mean, we can go into some of the of, of the, the, the possible neuroscience. I haven't had the millions of dollars to go off and do, you know, the appropriate fMRIs, but it, you know, you know, I'm not dead yet. So maybe the money will come. But when you think about it, uh, curiosity requires a certain uh, set of, of behavioral expressions in order to be evident. So if I'm curious, I'm going to be moving forward. I'm going to be um, moving into something. Oh, what's that? Uh, if I'm curious, I'm going to have a positive, an positive anticipation of where I'm going. Otherwise, it's fearfulness. So, oh, dear, that's a problem. You go, oh, what's that? And there's a sense of something's, something's coming that's going to be of interest. Uh, that's interesting. That's that's wonderful. Um, you also need to you you, you clarify uh, and you focus your attention. And it's not like stressful focus where you close your mind in around the the, the problem, the the danger, the threat. Curious attention actually has a broad uh, and peripheral sort of framework to us. Oh, that's really good. Oh, and there and there and there. So there's sort of a, a, a one scans because one feels safe. To do so uh, and then what is fascinating when we when we come across something or we get a, an answer when uh, we figure out something or we learn something or there's a serendipitous surprise it's like oh wow so when the uh, I know this wonderful experiment I was, I was watching it was on television and people you know when you put the egg on top of a a, a bottle you, you put a lighted taper in the bottle you put a, a hard-boiled egg on top and as the taper burns out and it changes the pressure it pulls the egg into the bottle and everybody always goes oh wow well that's a um a little release of of the endorphins and the encephalins so we actually get rewarded when we're curious and come across answers because that makes us eager on a dopaminergic level later to move towards curiosity again. So you've got serotonin. Um, you must have serotonin happening because it's it's calming the amygdala because we know that stimulates the GABAergic system. We know we're getting dopamine because we're positively anticipating. We know we're getting clarity and also peripheral clarity in our prefrontal cortex. That's norepinephrine and, uh, or noradrenaline, depending on which country you're in, and um, uh, acetylcholine. We know we're getting uh, little puffs of pleasure, so we're getting uh, norepinephrine and, nor and the, the uh, endocephalins and the endomorphins. And we also are open to the possibility of engagement with others. We're certainly open to, the, to, to engaging with these because that's what uh, curiosity leads us to creativity, sort of, oh, what's that about? What are you about? What's happening? So we're most likely got some oxytocin being fired off at the same time. And I don't know any other state of mind that releases in a positive balance all those neurochemicals. So uh, it's a it's a pretty damn useful thing. And if you can get your depressed patient curious, you watch them, they aren't depressed in that moment of curiosity, at least for that that short period of moment. Amazing, amazing. Okay, so the thing that comes to my mind now is how much of this is uh, nature versus nurture for, you know, in the, in the game that we're in, we do a lot of interviews. So it almost requires that curiosity element. And that's why I love it because it just, 
it just brings out a better state of being every time I have to do it, you know? So how much of this is learned and how much of this is, is innate? Have you thought much about that? Oh, yes, I have a little, actually. Thought about it a lot. Uh, it, it, it's, it's really important. The whole, I mean, really, the nature-nurture discussion, uh, and of course it has been a debate, but now I think it's just a discussion, is really the, the um, now a becoming uh, and bringing us into the inevitable awareness that we're not a linear, uh, a linear species. We're not a, a linear world, a linear life. We're a complex system. So there are all kinds of things that contribute and add to the system along the way. So we have initial conditions uh, and the initial conditions set up the framework of the system. And then as we go along, there are various things that change. There's organizing principles and rules and various attractors and changes and variances and, and disruptors that come in. So uh, when you think in systems, and this is something I'm just sort of jumping dumping on you now, but when you think in systems, of course, there's nature and nurture. There's initial conditions. Then there are things that occur uh, over time that add and alter and vary and orient the experience. So curiosity is an orientation. Happiness is an orientation. Sadness is an orientation. Depression is an orientation. And the body will collectively, and in its unique and individual way, move itself into the state of being that is reflective of that experience. So one doesn't cause the other all things are co-incident and uh, and co-responsive. It seems that a big part of this, Richard, like to really get the benefit from curiosity is being able to be curious about simple things, you know, like just the everyday things that, that are going on around. It's like, if you can be curious about, I don't know, you've got this like mirroring hands approach, for example, but even just like yeah. your your hands, you know, if you take a real look at your hands, like it's it's a pretty incredible structure you've got there, you know, like yeah, curiosity, yeah, it it, it isn't it, it is a natural uh, uh, a natural part of our state. I mean, probably the drive of it, uh, Yak Panksep gave us the insight too when he talked about seeking, but it's also play is one of the other positive drives, forward forward moving drives. I actually have um, uh, come to the conclusion or at least the ideas that curiosity, what we've done is we've isolated, we've, we've limited it by making mostly our curiosity about finding how things work, you know, that uh, getting the information of learning the information, uh, analyzing and, uh, and perhaps just uh, pulling things apart and putting them back together again, which is fantastic. But we also learn a lot from play so this is where we get serendipitous learning and most of our social engagement and uh, a lot of our awareness of our body is learned through play and through rough and tumble and through what we call what well, play is really what's called unregulated experience so it doesn't have rules it doesn't have regulations it just is spontaneous and then we go oh you know surprise uh, but i think the the real purpose of our or the, the 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 movement that we our curiosity is taking us towards through new information that we gather by investigation or by play is to then discover 
a deeper sense of self and of meaning, a different relationship. So we have a breakthrough, a light bulb moment, an inspiration, and that leads to further creativity. And it's the creativity of meaning and purpose. So I think our curiosity, so it's not a philosophy for meaning, it's actually a curiosity for meaning because that's what takes us forward and enables us to survive. So in other words, curiosity is a necessary innate element to have in order to better survive. So therefore, I do think it is part of, of nature. But we can actually then heighten curiosity and make it a self-generating uh, or a self-directed act by being curious about particular things. So a friend of mine uh, sort of said a while ago, he said, I think, I think it's curiosity squared. That's what it is. And he didn't really know what he was saying. He was just being sort of intuitive, feeling like it, it doubles up. And uh, my... Uh, sort of interpretation of that or adding is is if you are curious by nature and then curious by self-direction then it's you're just curious all the time all it is is just you're curious or curiosity squared uh and everything has the potential to be fascinating uh but it doesn't mean i walk along whoa 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 you know you, you, sometimes you are just you know opening the, the the office door but if it's there as the the undertone as the as sort of the initial framework uh it's really hard to get depressed it's really hard to get too anxious it's it's really hard to get too bogged down by the difficulties of life it's really hard to um uh go into the negativities of seeking which is where we have things like um, uh, addictions and various in that area particularly because addictions and those sorts of areas is very much about the lack of relationship whereas curiosity enables you to be open towards relationships all the time and and i do often get criticized for talking to inanimate objects but they're quite interesting you know, sort of rock. How are you going there? Oh, you're looking a bit. Uh, you're looking a bit sort of crystal there. Bit of a glint. Oh, that was nice. I hope you're feeling well today. And it's a bit odd, but it just makes every moment of the day potentially interesting. Uh, I, I I want to heighten the fact that I'm not saying we all have to be happy or curious. Or there are always. The, the flow between chaos and rigidity in life. But uh, if curiosity is your is a foundation and one of the, the, not only the initial conditions, but also one of the organizing principles of your life, everything changes for the better. Until, until you, you said that, you know, I never had thought about this from like an evolutionary point of view, you know, those of our ancestors that would have been curious, um, there would have been a payoff to that because that would have been, associated with seeking behavior, finding resources, finding food, et cetera. So we've got this whole neurochemical cocktail that gets released whenever we, we are curious. And maybe that's what's, that's what's going on there. And then another thing that came to mind was we interviewed Janina Fisher for our addiction summit coming up. Ah, yes. Yeah. She's fabulous. Yeah. One of the first, first things she does whenever she's working with clients, particularly whenever they're struggling with addictions is 
she tries to switch their orientation from maybe judgment or shame or whatever to curiosity because she says that gets the prefrontal cortex going and gets them into these more, I suppose, evolved parts of the brain. Now, something I'm curious to ask you about, Richard, is you went through a transition. I think you were an actor until the age, until your early 40s, and then you've yeah, moved into yeah. the therapeutic world. So um, the first thing I want to ask is, how has your experiences in acting, how has that informed your therapeutic work today? That's the first thing. And then I'll ask you the next question after. Okay, great. It's a great question. And just a quick one on Janita. I mean, you can see that people are doing this thinking and she's saying the prefrontal cortex, but more to the point, it actually activates uh, areas. Most of the areas that supply and, and generate these um, neurotransmitters occur in the subcortical region. In the, so it's it's an older history and there's, you know, we won't go, there's lots of stuff in there anyway in the neuroscience and I've written a bunch of articles about it. But um, uh, so even people like Janina are only halfway, in my thinking, there's more, there's more to go. But where were we? We're to acting. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I did a workshop uh, at, at the Milton Erickson Foundation conference a few years ago entitled Almost Everything I Know in Psychotherapy I Learned in Acting School. Uh, because it's true. There's so much that we do in psychotherapy. The, the, the understanding other people, uh, their dialogue, their actions, their movement, um, looking for the, uh, the self-actualization within ourselves as well as the self-actualization within others. And you can learn so much about who you are when you're other people. Uh, when you find the other people within you. I mean, we talk about the multiple selves or the, the multiple uh, expressions of, of self. Well, I've played uh, young people, old people, females, uh, murderers, heroes. And, uh, and I, I, I was amazed how I could find a person like the character in, you know, the, uh, Hamlet, you know, uh, I found the crazy guy uh, who wasn't crazy, but was crazy. And uh, and it, it was really interesting because I, I actually used a line when sometimes clients come in and they say, they say, oh, do you think I'm crazy? And I say, oh, I've played Hamlet. You're fine. And it, it, it sort of disquiets. But uh, a lot of the, uh, of the capacity to be a successful human being, a successfully functioning human being, and therefore a successfully functioning therapist, is awareness of your being, uh, everywhere from the self, the cognitive conscious self, to that, uh, that inner intuitive uh, implicit sense of self. Uh, you know, we did exercises uh, where, where um, someone would approach us, a teacher would approach us from behind, we'd have our eyes closed, and he would move his hands towards our back. And then more often than not over the first because quite a few weeks his hands would reach out our backs and we go oh. and then came the day when i said you're near and suddenly you thought wow for the first time in i don't know how long i am feeling with my i'm feeling the the energy the 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 context the, the context of other people around me without having to be touched uh now that was pretty exciting as a you know 19 20 year old um and 
those sorts of of awarenesses of being i seriously kind of but joke half jokingly argue that everybody should do a year of acting as a, a national service because when you have been a lot of people as different from learning how to defend yourself from other people you're a lot less likely uh, you're a lot more likely to want to engage with them and a lot less likely to want to you know have a war with them uh, and so i think it was absolutely vital my perception of language the 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 lilt in the voice the things that ernie rossi was learning from milton erickson uh, and and in volume three of the 16 um, uh, the 16 volumes ernie replays a, a transcript of when he was saying so so the therapist has to he has to be aware of facial expressions and and vocal tone and 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 verbal sonority and body movements and and adjustments and ericsson said yes and ernie said wow that's a lot harder than just giving them a therapy and ericsson said yes and so acting has actually been a fundamental and vital training ground I was quite successful. I did quite a lot of things. But in my 40s, uh, you know, I, I hadn't quite cracked the stardom thing. So moving into psychotherapy, people thought was weird, but it actually was incredibly uh, sensible and useful um, and valuable utilization of all that previous training. It's fascinating. So it's that whole phrase of, you know, you can only connect the dots looking back and uh you know it just it strikes me that it could be very beneficial for therapy for a couple of reasons and um, the first is that it kind of forces you to engage in perspective taking you know you've really got to get into the mind of the act or the the role that you're playing so you've really got to take that perspective which can be beneficial in the rest of your life and then the other thing is that you know it must teach you a lot about the change process because you could be playing like someone else mentioned this to me um that i interviewed before but he said you know you could be playing a murderer um in the afternoon and then go home and like have a meeting with your family as a completely different self you yeah. know so it must change you a lot it, teach you a lot of change yes it's a, it's it's actually a wonderful way uh on a on the positive side of things of learning more about who you are because you have to figure out who to return to uh, and of course some people have struggled with that. Peter Sellers is a great example of, of sometimes the, the, there was a time when he was with, wasn't coming out of his dressing room and, and Michael Parkinson and, and Parkinson went into the dressing room and said, uh, Peter, what's the trouble? He said, I, I don't know who to be. And he said, well, just come out as whoever you want. And so he came out of one of the characters from one of his films, which was actually, unfortunately, the, the one of the German, you know, sort of Nazi things from, uh, from, from the, the things that some of the things he did. But we can get lost and people get lost. People get lost in the distractions from the clarity of, of inner, inner connection and inner peace. And one of the things that, which is another one of the, my books, when I'm talking about the, the impact on mental orientation uh, that occurs because of the high degree of external evaluation that we give ourselves, what I call the winner-loser world, where, where you have to win and you can't lose, but winning and losing is based on what other people say. And so this changes you to become more defensive and become 
more prone to anxiety, more prone to um, uh, depression, more prone to uh, uh, express a an away sort of emotions, fear and, and concern and, and all those sorts of stuff as different from the positive, more moving forward, play, curiosity, and so on and so forth. Okay. Okay. This is so interesting. Now, I heard you've, I've heard you quote uh, Milton Erickson elsewhere saying that uh, the best type of therapy is the one that never gets repeated. Could you maybe expand on that well, a bit and why that's, why that's important? Here's, yeah. Here's, here's, here's the, here's the catch 22. Here's the, here's the, the, the cat amongst the pigeons. Is it possible that despite the fact that we have some fantastic and wonderful therapeutic explorations and examinations and development and creations of methodologies that we've actually forgotten where the origin, what the origin is all about. Because all these therapies and all these practices, where do they come from? They came from us. They came from stuff we do. Uh, and in fact, I quite often like to quote uh, it's the film, It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart. And, uh, you know, he, he, uh, he lost all this money or there was a financial thing. He was the, the, the manager of the bank and he thought, oh, my God, it's all my fault. I've done this terrible thing. If I kill myself and, and um, uh, everyone will get the, the money and then everyone it's my fault. I wish I'd never been born. Then the angel comes down and waves the magic wand and he goes through the town as if he'd never been born. No one recognizes him. They're all nastier. His, his wife is actually a spinster, so his children are never born. And he goes, oh, no, this is terrible. This is terrible. I should have been born. I, it's wonderful. Magic wand again. They end up, the happy families, hugs, hugs, hugs. He had this terrible belief. He moved into a, a distorted sense of reality. Uh he went through, he went through an experiential framework to reframe his belief and his patterns of ideas, standard CBT, in a film made 15 years before Aaron Beck ever thought of it. So it's, it's a part of our behavior system. It's a part of what I call our natural, uh, our natural um, uh, uh, mental health immune system. But the ones that we've pulled out and now we're actually getting ones that are more and more unusual or, or rare, but they're a part of, of reasonable human behavior. But what we did, we took them out and then we said, oh, well, this is the way, this is what makes people better. We've got evidence based. So now we'll put it back onto people. Rather than looking for learning about all these things and looking for what the client is expressing, are they expressing a CBT type of thing? Are they expressing a somatic type of thing? Are they expressing a visual type of nature? Um, are they doing things that I don't have to ask them to do, so therefore I'm controlling their framework, but I'm allowing them to express and I'm piggybacking on my knowledge and my expertise? Uh, uh, with the mirroring hands process, which gives you a lot of latitude uh, with that having to go great depths of explaining it, but gives the, 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 the client a lot of latitude. I remember a wonderful guy and uh, was a group exercise I was teaching. And I looked up at him and his eyes were moving back and forth. They were closed, but his eyeballs were moving back and forth, you know, rapid eye movement stuff. And we got to the end of it. And I, I asked him, what was going on? in your experience. He said, well, I was thinking about this very traumatic experience and I was getting quite upset about it. And then I went into this quiet stage 
and um, and then I don't know what happened, but you just called me and you asked. I, I just sort of really I can't remember what happened, but I feel much better now. Spontaneously induced EMDR, which is exactly what happened with Francine Shapiro. She didn't invent it. She discovered it. She noticed it. She was curious and explored it. So that's why if we pay attention, sometimes there's standard therapies or pretty standard or combinations. We're all talking about integrating therapies now. Well, of course we are. That's what we should have been doing. We're, we're, we're just slow in realizing where it, where it came from in the first place. Um, but if we look at someone when they're working and we just work with them, and I had a guy, I had these little fun chalkboards. I used to have a little saying, little something cute. And I just put one saying, life is not, and I put a set of scales, just with two things. It's more like a, and I drew a mobile with all these several. And he came in and he said, that looks good. Can we, can we do the mobile of my life? And I went, yeah. Sure. So I had a little whiteboard. We got out. We did the mobile of his life. And he worked away and he put his parents there and they were a big heavy weight. And then he had to put him with this. And then his friends were here and his work was here. And he was going. And every time he put something somewhere, he'd look at it and then he'd go, Oh, I know what's happening there. Oh, that's a stuff and blah, 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 blah. And eventually he said, But how can I? How? He said, Oh, just because he's looking at his, the, the weight of, his, of the negativity from his parents. He said, can I move the fulcrum, the, the, the little bit in the middle that everything balances from? I said, listen, I've never done any of this before. This is fantastic. You can do whatever you like. How empowered was this client? And how, how much was I a facilitator and an assistant? Anyway, we moved the fulcrum. And he said, if I move the fulcrum there, which makes my friends and my work and my relationships a much better balance the only way i can make that work is if i reduce the weight of my parents and so we went forward and he rubbed out the circle and he drew a smaller one and he sat back and he said oh my god richard you're the first person to ever see me truly and I swear to god i'm sitting there going yes i've no idea well i you know i was i was with you i'm i'm following you and he came back the next week and he said, I came to you because I've been miserable for as long as I can remember. I can't remember just spontaneously smiling. And he said, I've been smiling all week and we've kept up and that's uh, maintained. You know, he had his ups and downs, but he said, I've never stopped smiling again in his life. I've never done that again because it's never been appropriate. Uh, so it was the perfect. So that's what Erickson was saying. The one that you, you've never done before and you never do again is most likely a perfectly attuned, the most attuned you are to the client's capacities, the client's wants and needs, and the client's natural uh, uh, predilections. So that's the nature of that. Short answer. <laughs> My son says, Dad, if you start talking about dinosaurs, we're in trouble. But uh, hopefully that explained it with some, some degree of clarity. It was a, a great example to illustrate the point. And what comes to mind for me there is that if you're approaching a therapy session and you've got a framework that you want to impose on the session, then that's going to take you out of that attunement and it's going to create a sort of sense, sense of separation between you and the client, which is going to prevent that kind of something as magic as that showing up, you know? Yeah. 
I have only only called them uh, creative moments. Uh, I'm doing work now. I've got a PhD. I'm doing on um, uh, the question is about client responsiveness, which is not where the the client responds to you. It's where you respond to the client. And uh, he called them uh, creative moments. Uh, the guy Bill Styles, who's been doing this stuff for for the last twenty years or so too, he calls it appropriate moment by moment responses to the clients to what the to what the client puts forth, what is successfully working for the client. And um, it's really, uh, instead of being a uh, uh, an interventionist work, which still is very effective and still can be very good. I'm not saying people not to do these things in any way, in any stretch. And sometimes I do when that's appropriate for a client, when they just need something done to them. But I'm sitting there listening. What's the word? What's the lilt? What's the change? And one of my favorite ones is 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 these amorphous words, these ambiguous words. I say, oh, I'm sick of it. Can't stand it anymore. It's too much. It's just too much. And I go, great. So I'll get my little whiteboard out. I'm sick of it. Can't stand it. Too much. And I'll put then a big it. And I'll say, wow. So all we got to do, we now know it's really bad. What's it? What's it? You've now become, it's become something that, you've you've lost grasp of and i go oh i never thought of that because <laughs> of course they were focused on the on the problem mm-hmm. and the creative moment is this um beautiful gem but sometimes they say something specifically and they'll but they're focused on the you know so and so and so makes me feel this so and so makes me feel that yeah 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 sure you feel bad that's why you're here oh so and so ah that's what's interesting. And that's what I learned in acting school. That's what I learned from Shakespeare. Why is it important that therapists learn multiple different types of therapy and not just the one approach? Yeah. Well, that goes back uh, to what I was saying, because we're learning all these therapies are differentiated elements of a single human system. And when a client comes in, it would be lovely if they all came in with the, the 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 natural capacities and inclinations and predilections for the therapy that we've learned. Um, in the in the client responsive stuff that uh, Styles and and some of those guys are talking about, they talk about adjusting your therapeutic approach moment by moment, and I think that's obviously very good. Um, I tend to try and be even more fluid and learn, and not so much learn, but become aware of as many as possible. And uh, and most of them leave openness. Um, I mean, I've done art therapy with people because they started to bring me art uh, or you know, therapeutically beneficial art. So I did art therapy. Now I studied heaps in between sessions, but they started it. I had another one, I was doing mirroring hands and they said, I've got this incredible image in my hand. So we started doing image therapy and metaphor therapy through images. And she would come uh, each week with new images. Uh, so I went in, in that direction. Um, so there's a, there's a degree of various, a certain set of, of therapeutic approaches that sit well with you, that fit with your capacities and your predilections and you should be well focused and geared up on those but if the client starts to go over here i have no resistance i've never experienced resistance i've experienced people having difficulty or not feeling comfortable with with the work we're doing 
So I just change. I'm just shift. Where do you want to go? I, it, it was an extraordinary experience and it was quite surprising because I was giving an example of what Erickson said. The purpose of the work of the, of the therapist is to, to give the response ability for effective therapy back to the client um, to try and get them centered. So anyway, I was giving a, a demonstration of mirroring hands or something or a, a, what a client responsive approach. And the, someone came out from the audience and I said, oh, where would you like to sit? A couple of chairs. And they sat and I said, well, are you comfortable? And they said, yeah. And so I sat down. I said, it's okay if I'm here because I've heard people talk about don't sit in front, don't, don't sit beside. So what's comfortable for you? They said, oh, no, that's really great where you are. Anyway, a friend of mine came to, to me afterwards who just retired after 40 years working with uh, Kaiser Permanente. He said, you know, I've never given the client the authority to choose their chair. What a brilliant idea. My God, this is fantastic. And I thought, yeah, it's not been the standard approach. Um, a lot of people are doing it, and that's what my PhD will be examining, how many people are doing this. But that that way of forming a co-creative experience and to give the client uh, that sense that they have control they have a degree of control, in fact, the greater control. Now, someone comes in, they say, I don't know where to sit. Oh, I don't know. Well, of course, I'm responsive. I'll say, oh, well, how about you sit there? Of course, I'm going to uh, hold their own uh, uh, expression and what they ask for. And I'll say, but if you ever want to change chairs, you just ask me. You just say, you're, you're perfectly welcome to do that. But if you want me to help you. So it's, again, that feeling the room like you did with an actor someone comes in and says hello when they when they walk on stage you want to know who they are where they've been what they had for breakfast how much family how angry they are how happy they are you know how many dogs they had when they were a kid that's what you bring on as a full character that's what a client brings to you they bring a full human being not just their problems and not just something that um, is going to be appropriate for the therapy you think is a good idea. This is, this makes a lot of sense. And, you know, your approach, it sort of reminds me of like, it sounds like you're in a continuous or a perpetual state of beginner's mind in therapy. You don't, you're, you're in that place most of the time, you've got this mind like water approach, you know, and yeah. I've, uh, I've, I've, I've got a, I, I mean, that's nice. I, it was actually, that was the title of the, the reviews I did of, uh, uh, Ernie said to me, I want you to review the 16 volumes uh, of Ericsson's work for uh, the Ericsson newsletter. So, and we're now reproducing them in the Science of Psychotherapy magazine. And uh, it was called The Beginner's Mind. And uh, so I approached it that there. And I thought about it. I said, yeah, it sounds a little bit, that sounds a little bit too, um, uh, self-effacing and i call it naive curiosity mm. so i come with i come in not knowing what you're about absolutely full of what i'm what i've got but with a curiosity to discover and contribute so that's the the way i approach the the language and the the um the orientation of it I think this maybe leads well into the next question I wanted to ask is, can you tell me about the fields of actuality, probability, and possibility and their relevance for psychotherapy? 
possibility is probably uh, curiosity and possibility are the the, the things that have um, really been my my uh, my main focus of trying to understand because there's so many other people doing fabulous work on other things I just borrow from them but this is that's where I've sort of focused my attention and possibility in the sense of the work we do what makes possibility interesting because there are certainly things that we can resolve out of uh, out of what we already know but possibility if we think of that as what we don't yet know or we don't yet understand. So the possibility field sits just at the edge of our, our present experience. And it is the nature of the future. The future is the possibility field. Now, actuality is those things that have been actualized. Well, that's everything behind us. Uh, and in everything behind us, there are lots of fabulous tools, both cognitive and, and just biological, all the nurture stuff that we've picked up. But some of the nurture is damaging. So, of course, we also have trauma and difficulty and struggle. So we have, we have interruptions. But that's all behind us. So the behind is useful uh, in the context of what it, what it tells us. But the answers are not in just what is possible, meaning what I think now is possible. It's in what I don't even know exists uh, like you could do um, mobile therapy and move the fulcrum now they're all made out of actualities uh, certainly but we we created an entirely new version a, a entirely new vision of the experience and what is the struggle I think that, and and what is the sufferance and particularly this this winner loser world this this wanting to make sure this this fear of um of unpredictability this this fear of the fact that I, i'm not quite sure what's happening is that we we have the possibility field right in front of us which is the space that ernie would call the growing edge so we have our growing edge and what we do is we go well i don't really want to go in there i i do want to go in there because i want to expand i mean when you're four this doesn't worry you because you haven't got any You've got very, very little actuality. So everything's about the possibility field. But the, the more you get of that, the more you go, well, I'll just put some of my actuality in front of me and a little bit, maybe just two or three steps. And I'll just push the possibility. I'll get to the possibility field. But I just want a couple of secure, predictable sort of steps. But then what we tend to do, and particularly when the world is pressuring us to survive, is we just keep pushing the possibility field away from us. And I call this little gap, and this is just my own language, uh, the, the probability bridge. Mm. So I just want something, some security uh, of the probability bridge. Now, I find the probability bridge nice, and sometimes I use it, but it's boring, and it just stifles my curiosity. So I just go out of the way. Mm. Well, bring this back and stick my head in and uh, look what's happened. I don't know. I've just had this extraordinary, for me, my life has been extraordinary, um, not extraordinary compared to others, but for me, it's been extraordinary because I couldn't have imagined myself being where I am now uh, when I was 20 uh, or even 30. And I used to say to my 
<laughs> acting friends where I bump into them, say, hey, what are you doing now, Richard? And I said, well, um, I'm a neuroscientific psychotherapist who likes to discuss genetics and uh, the, the nature of possibility and curiosity. And they go, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> what are you really doing? <laughs> so, so as it goes. It's absolutely fascinating. And the thing that really, whenever I was just preparing for this, the thing that really jumped out at me was that the aim of this is sort of to create a state of being that can move forward in the world without the need for predictability, without needing to know exactly what's going to happen. And whenever you're working with a client in therapy, that's kind of what you're hoping to achieve. Yep. It's really hard. Because what I'm suggesting, and I'm not the first philosopher who's done this and first uh, person who's done it, what I'm suggesting is that given the opportunity and the appropriate circumstances, we have a complex self-organizing system that will seek to find wellness. Uh, now, we see this in our biology, but I think we also have this in our psychobiology. And so that's the nature of stuff. We, we were talking to someone the other day. He said... I just help people get into themselves, get back in touch with themselves. And he said, I had someone who had an eating disorder and we didn't treat the eating disorder at all. We just treated their, their lack of fascination with their own life. And after six or eight weeks, uh, he said, I, I said to her, well, how's that eating disorder? We haven't done much about that. And she said, oh yeah, oh, that's gone. Uh, I'm too busy doing this other stuff now. You know. Um, so, so there's uh uh, and another example was uh, a friend of mine uh, runs a recovery center called Recovery in uh, Alexandria in, in Egypt because he was looking after um, uh, uh, recovered drug addicts in hospital, but they would just go out and you know, they, would, they would take again, they come back. So he started this recovery center. And uh, so he's doing that. Then the Egyptian spring comes along and suddenly they all then had about 50 men and they all had to go back to protect their, their, their streets and, but, you know, by doing that. And um, Sharif was sitting there saying, all you could see, there were no police, there was no army, there were just uh, the, the, the local community was doing things and I could see them and drug dealers. They were just everywhere. It was just what a prime time when everybody's stressed. Anyway, they came back and not one of his uh, people went back on drugs, took any drugs. And uh, cutting a sort of a long story short, he was he was very gentle in, in, in discussing it with them. But fundamentally what they said was, we didn't because what we were doing was too important. Okay. So when we look at addiction, when we look at why we go off uh, and do things is something else that we are not important enough. What we are being and doing is not important enough. And we need something else to come along and get us that importance, solve that, that, um, that disconnection, that dissociation and that loneliness that we, might, that we might have. Whereas actually when you find this and what's going on here, and there's nothing better than you know, doing a, a, a theatre school <laughs> to do that, uh, you, you, you're too busy. I, I, I was all around as a musician and writing and doing all kinds of things in the in the 70s, late 70s and 80s. And I never really got into the cocaine or, or stuff. It was everywhere. Um, I was too busy. 
It's too busy. I, it, it interfered with my songwriting. I, I, I didn't want to do it. And I won some, you know, major international awards. It was, it was really good. Much better than just having a, a couple of hours of um, some kind of weird perception of, of me being Jesus or Napoleon or someone. Maybe we should almost choose our responsibilities in such a way that requires the state of being that would be meaningful in and of itself. Like if you choose to be a therapist, then that requires that you show up every day able to serve your clients you know if you choose to do interviews and stuff it's the same thing um mm -hmm. writing the same and the music probably the same for you as well if you don't have these responsibilities that bring the state of being out of you then maybe it's a lot easier to fall into addiction yeah. or things like and that. that's right and various things and and for your system to lose its connection to become disintegrated as we talk about in interpersonal neurobiology with dan siegel but the word responsibility is is a great example of the winner loser world coming in responsibility it's who's at fault who's wrong who has to pay and it's a, it's a, it's a, an abomination of 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 a great word because it's like wonderful we want to have a wonderful life we want to have a response able life mm. and if you find your response abilities um and if those response abilities help you, then great. If things aren't working, then, and you don't have the response ability, well, then there's stuff to learn. And that can be, you know, when a client goes, oh, I don't know how to do this. Uh, I love it when they say, I don't know. I go, oh, fantastic. Um, and I say, oh, I've got all this stuff I can, I, I, I've, I've uh, you know, all those books there. You don't have to read them. I can give you a summary. And, and they'll go, you know, like you're doing now with some of the things going, oh, that's really interesting. Oh, I like that idea. And you're, you're individually pulling apart and, and forming your own version of, uh, of what is satisfying for your idiosyncrasies, needs, capacities uh, at this moment. And so we are all therapists all the time with everyone. And that is what uh, comes... Uh, and then we're positive therapists when we just live a kind, curious, engaged, compassionate, joyful life. Uh, as they say, uh, uh, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. If you want everybody to be sane uh, and uh, joyously sane, not uh, boringly sane, be joyously sane, then value add depending upon your tendencies. I did it with acting for a while. I did it with music for another time. I did it as a psychotherapist for time. It's all the same stuff. It's all the same, just different versions, different facets of the diamond. It, it seems like you've just been on such a, such a fascinating adventure over the years, you know, and you're sort of being led by where, where your curiosity and a sense of meaning has taken you, you know, is that, is that fair to say? I think I'm very fortunate to, to, to do all that. I did have a very good attachment. Uh, I had very uh, positively secure attachment. So, so that was a hurdle I didn't have to overcome. And I think there are quite a lot of people who need to sort of work that that um, that dissociative or that um, um, sort of elements. Those elements. I didn't have uh, a lot of traumas that I didn't learn from. They did. I didn't have a lot of post-traumatic. Uh, disorder. I more had post-traumatic growth, but my, uh, you know, my my dad and mum split when I was five. Uh, you know, we 
she found a, a, a lovely man who, uh, when I was about eight till uh, 13, who was the ma- my main male uh, role model and teacher and things. And he died suddenly when I was 13. It's pretty traumatic. Uh, but the secure attachment helped. But I'm sure, and I, it's actually, I tell the story in, uh, in, in, in our film on uh, grief. Uh, and it's, I sort of say it's somebody else, but it's actually my story. But I was 13 when he when he died, and we we used to. He taught me how to build things, and he taught me how to paint, and he taught me how to uh, be a you know musician. He, he opened all that up, and in this shed that we built, we put our hands in the cement. You know that sort of classic thing: put your hands in the cement. And I was 16, pulling the lawnmower out of the the this this old fibro shed that we built out of bits and pieces. Just a wonderful bit of creativity out of uh, uh, you know not much money and things. And I put my hand in mine, and of course it didn't fit because I, I was much older. And I just moved my hand and I put it in John's, and it fitted. And I had just like this moment. And and so, yeah, so between 13 and 16, I obviously had a lot of shit going down. Uh, but I pulled it together then. Then I had other things. I've lost all my money twice. Ah, that's an, that, can, that can make you, you know, pretty cheery. Uh, and so uh, and what I didn't manage uh, uh, what I wasn't response able with uh, I found I was able to learn so I'm I'm fortunate um, that I didn't have to overcome other barriers as many other barriers that I know some people uh, because I see them they come to they come to see me and I tell them my stuff and I say, oh, that's dreadful. I said, yeah, but I didn't have this thing that you had and this trauma you had. So let's clear those. And then if you like what I do, then oh, you know, off you go. You know, go for it yourself. Uh, and that gives people, a, 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 I think, a good sense of comfort that then they're not dealing with a theorist. They're dealing with a, a lived experience uh, theorist. Just a couple of questions to wrap up, Richard. Uh, for someone listening to this that's maybe at the start of their therapeutic career, is there anything, and maybe their goal is to sort of become, I don't want to say the best therapist they can be, because I've heard you say elsewhere that you should be aiming to become uh, more of yourself or the most, whatever. But yeah, um, yeah. Someone, someone who wants to realize most of their, their potential as a therapist, what guidance would you offer to that person? What would you say to someone in that situation? This, this is a great question. It's a good one because, you know, I'm sitting saying, oh, I do this, don't let that happen. I think Certainly as a therapist, uh, you know, I spent four or five years doing the, the, the preparatory work. Then I met up with Ernest Rossi. I was his apprentice, not, not just being mentored. I mean, I had to, uh, I couldn't talk to him. I couldn't, or not, I couldn't talk to him, but there was no point in me saying something unless I really thought about it and really worked at it. So it was, it was a testing uh, learning period. I went to three or four conferences every year to learn and engage, just as I did when I was an actor. I went to school every week. I would sit in the train and watch people. I would go to every piece of theater and film uh, that, that I could do to just immerse myself in the experience. But the best way to describe it, I think, is through the artistic expression. And because what I'm talking about is the, the capacity to improvise, to, uh, to co-create an improvised experience with 
an individual who's not got their 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 instrument working properly and you who've got an instrument but you're not quite sure whether it's you're playing the same type of tune and the essence of a great improviser is somebody who's done the study who's done the techniques and in fact chick korea the the great jazz improviser and musician uh, and very avant-garde and someone said how can i improvise how can i improvise like you chick you know and he said learn the classics learn to read music do your scales learn to become technically as perfect as you can then you forget it and just play but it doesn't mean you have to become brilliant at technique it there are points you get to this point and you improvise with those things then you go a bit further and you then improvise with those things and those things before then you go a bit further and uh I can look back on my last 10 years or so and see three or four times where I thought, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good now. And then I go, oh, no, 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 and I learned something else. And now it's just this glorious thing where I go, wow, what else can I learn? And now I learn it from clients more than I do from textbooks. It seems that, you know, the more you have a grasp of the maybe the big ideas in therapy, like the, the kind of core foundational concepts, um, the more creative you can be, like the more you have a, a master of these kind of key areas like are there any books you'd recommend for someone that wants to sort of develop that understanding yeah all of them um so, but but essentially if you read these books not to learn how you can make a human being better but to read these books learning how you can understand the human being you have sitting in front of you better and sometimes the human being that you're seeing in the mirror better i mean certainly i have to Spruik, my own book, I suppose, the the uh, uh, the practitioner's guide to the science of psychotherapy, but also the practitioner's guide to mirroring hands, which is this this more sort of hypnotherapeutic type of practice, but it's it's really a a, a psychotherapeutic type of practice. And in there, we uh, particularly in the science of psychotherapy uh, uh, book, we really try and say, here's all the details, here's all the facts. But all the way through the book, we, we, we pause with a box saying, okay, now with these facts, this is how you can better understand. So that stuff about the brain, this is how you can better understand the person sitting in front of you. With genetics, here is how these genetics can uh, give you a better potential understanding of the person that is in front of you. Um, I mean, Erickson, uh, Milton Erickson put it rather nicely. He said, the, the trouble with psychotherapists and the way we're taught is that you ask them out to dinner, but they order your food for you. <laughs> and we've kind of got to um, realize that our expertise is not our capacity to intervene, but our capacity to recognize and attune. The first thing we need to do is to learn these techniques and, and find what we, we have the affinity to. Um, for example, my friend Steve Bryan, brilliant, brilliant jazz guitarist, one of the best jazz guitarists in in uh, in Australia. Went to New York uh, in you know mid to late twenties. Uh, was asked to sit in with a band uh, at a, a famous uh, one of the famous jazz clubs. Did his improvisations. He came off stage and said, "I don't know what I'm doing." And he went home and he practiced for another two or three months despite the fact that he was considered one of the best guitarists in, in, in our country. And then he went back and played again. And then he said, I was better. 
Pablo Casals, you know, when he's in his 80s, was still practicing and doing uh, work with the cello. And they say, what are, you, what are you doing? He said, well, I think I'm starting to get it now. So it's a journey of excitement and pleasure. And each time you and the client resonate and integrate and produce beneficial change, which is the best, the simplest that we should go for, there's just that sense of, wow, I've just participated in something creatively magical. And that is the joy of being human. And that is the wonder of being a therapist. And so we have supervisors. I'm a supervisor. People come saying, oh, I don't know what to do. I did this and that. And more often than not, I've got another idea. And they'll go, oh, never thought of that. So it's by combining heads, having those uh, people that assist. All these things are what will bring you, what you learn, what you study. Um, uh, if you're into neuroscience, I mean, there's great people like uh, uh, Lou Cozzolino, Dan Siegel, of course, does a lot of wonderful stuff with interpersonal neurobiology. Um, uh, John Arden does some brilliant books in neuroscience. Go and uh, look at the biology and go look at uh, uh, Robert Sapolsky. You can get all these tapes online. The science of psychotherapy. There's heaps of, of uh, uh, stuff that we have for free as well as the stuff that we have. Uh, we've got, you know, I don't know, 15, 1600 hours of, of material where reading and video material. Um, go to conferences. Uh, I mean, now they're online. I like going because I also like talking to the crazy people at the conference, uh, the other therapists. And there's um, immerse yourself in the joyfulness of the experience of becoming a deeper and richer human being. And that is what will help you become a grand and uh, effective therapist. Richard, I just want to say a huge thank you for taking the time to share some of your wisdom with us and your fascination um, just about your subject. You know, you, you have a real deep love for this and it really comes through in the way you communicate and the way you speak. I think my kind of main couple of takeaways are just like having a basic orientation of curiosity in the world like can only be good, you know, um, that and this sort of like almost like mind like water or beginner's mind approach where you're you're never coming to, to a situation with prior expectations but just adapting to whatever's happening you know so um i've really enjoyed this i really enjoyed preparing for it so i want to i want to um just say thank you and where can people find out more information about your work about the science of psychotherapy and maybe take a course with you guys like what would you recommend yeah, so the science of psychotherapy is, is quite easy. The science of psychotherapy.com is our site, which lays out the frameworks and get a lot of the free activities. And the science of psychotherapy, the in the beginning, the science of psychotherapy.net is where we have our academy. Uh, and uh, and you know, we really try and make it accessible. So we just have a very uh, simple monthly uh, sort of fee that 15 dollars i think of 12 12 american dollars anyway uh and uh so there's uh, lots of stuff there that's great value check out uh <laughs> we, we, you could find information about our book but get our book on, on, obviously on amazon the science of the practitioner's guide to the science of psychotherapy and of course me i'm richardhill.com.au uh, uh, uh so do that send me an email uh I, I, I keep it easy for me, Richard at richardhill.com.au. Can't go wrong. Well, 
can't go too far wrong. <laughs> but that's a great year, right? Well, I'll let you go. Uh, thanks a million, and just wish you the best of luck going forward. Ah, it, it's been wonderful to do. It's been wonderful to meet you and catch up with you. And of course, I'll plug the Weekend University. Uh, that's another place you can go to because there's some wonderful stuff in there. And again, not an expensive uh, uh, place to be able to gain information. Those are the things to look for. There's great bits of information that's uh, really beautifully put together. You've got to find people you can trust. But I recommend the Weekend University as well. Absolutely. Thank you, Richard. Appreciate it.